my name is Ryan, and if I haven't gotten to meet you guys, please come and say hi after service, because I want to meet you. Um, who got their physical Bible with them today? Yes? All right. We are going to kick off the night with some scripture from Daniel 9, 3 through 5, 17 and 19. So follow along with me with your physical Bible or behind here. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turned against or tend aside from your commandments and rules. Now, therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of the servant and his pleas for mercy for your own sake. O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake. O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. And this is the word of the Lord. All right. How are you guys doing tonight? Good. Hello. All right. Like Ryan said, if I haven't got to meet you, I hope to meet you after this. But my name is Molly. Thank you. Thank you. I like my name, too. So Pastor Jackson always talks about that we like scripture here chunky. But I need you guys to buckle up because this is a chunky message. Are you guys ready? Ready? Okay. So we're going to dive in because we have been in our vision series, As It Is in Heaven, for three weeks. Or this is our third week. The first week, Pastor Jackson asked us, what needs to die? And then the second week, he asked us, what needs to change? And tonight, we are going to talk about what needs to shift. And we've all been looping this back to our theme verse in Luke chapter 11. It's the Lord's Prayer, and it says, when you pray... Say, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we're going to talk about what needs to shift tonight. Let's pray. God, I just thank you. I thank you for tonight. I thank you for the opportunity just to come before you, to hear from you. God, I pray that your voice would be heard tonight. I pray that whether we have been praying our whole lives or we have never actually entered into it, that you would just speak to us fresh tonight, that your spirit would just be in this place and that you would cover every single word, that it wouldn't just be words that come out and fall short, but they would be active and they would work and they would do what they're meant to do, what you have purposed tonight, God. We just give you this night and we pray that you would have our hearts and do what you want with them tonight. Jesus name I pray say amen. amen okay so when we were looking week one at what needs to die we were drawing from the Lord's Prayer where we're finding out this is not our kingdom 
we are not God, it's God's kingdom, right? And it's his will. And then week two, when we are asking what needs to change, we were asking what needs to change in order for earth to look like heaven, like as it is in heaven, right? Tonight, when we're asking about what needs to shift, what we're asking is what needs to shift because we have been called to pray. When we look at scripture, it, it, the Lord's Prayer, it's inviting us in. It's drawing us in. When Jesus gives the Lord's Prayer, it's in response to the disciples asking, hey, like, how do we do this thing called prayer? And his response is the Lord's Prayer like we've been talking about the last couple weeks. And he gives us instructions. And the instructions tell us that we have a role to play in bringing God's kingdom to earth and living out his will and making earth as it is in heaven. And that role is prayer. But can we be honest with each other in this room tonight? Are we good with being honest? Okay. I think the mass majority of people, including myself, from time to time, at one point in our life, we really struggle with prayer. Like, we don't understand prayer at all. We don't understand the significance of what God is inviting us into. And I think it's a lot of times because we have maybe misconceptions about it. We have some hang-ups. I think maybe your hang-up could be, like, you don't want to engage in prayer because to you, prayer is just an exercise for the religious elite. Like, that is for, like, the super, super saved people, like the Christian superheroes of the faith, right? Like, have you ever been in a room and someone prays and you're like, I don't think my prayers sound anything like that. <laughs> like, I think when they pray, it literally sounds like heaven is talking. And when I pray, it sounds like nothing. <laughs> have you ever felt like that? I have definitely felt like that for sure. And then all of a sudden it feels like, okay, if my prayer does not sound like this really fancy thing, like, that's surely, like, the only prayer that God answers is the people who are super saved. Like, he's not going to answer my prayer because it, it sounds super lame. And so maybe we draw back from prayer because we don't feel like we are this religious elite. Maybe we don't pursue prayer because for us, prayer is exhausting. Like, when we think about prayer, all we think about is how much time it takes the effort I have to put into it, like the attention, I have to not be ADD and like I have to focus in this moment, right? And so for us, the idea of pursuing prayer is just an exhausting task and so we don't do it. Or maybe you don't pursue prayer because for you, prayer has been nothing more than what I pray so that I can eat and what I pray so that I can sleep. And you've never gone past that. Or maybe you don't do prayer because for you, you would say, prayer has never worked for me. Like when I pray, I just feel like I'm talking to nothing. It's silence. Or even worse, I feel like every time I've asked for something, every time I've gone to God in prayer, it's just a denial. And so for you, you don't think prayer works. I think any of these perspectives, none of them actually moves the heart of a person to seek prayer. So why did Jesus pray? And why do the disciples want to pray? Why did they not have these hang-ups that a lot of us do? And I don't want to run past that, that question. I, I want us to, like, really consider the disciples for a second. Because I think sometimes we glorify them, right? We put them in that religious elite category. But the reality is these guys were so ordinary. They were very, very ordinary people that had very ordinary lives. Like, one of them 
just collected money for his living. And honestly, the culture he was in, people were not a fan of his because of what his job was. Then other disciples, their whole life revolved around fish. So very ordinary. And yet when they encounter Jesus, Jesus beckons them to abandon life as they know it and just to follow him. And as they follow him in this apprenticeship-type program, suddenly they start to see the miraculous. So these disciples see things like walking on water. They see the feeding of thousands of people, not once, but twice, right? They see a dead guy named Lazarus. Jesus brings him back to life after he's been stinking and dead for four days. That's really weird. They've seen people, their skin change, like leprosy was like a super bad skin disease that made your skin covered in sores and it was painful and scabby and not pretty. But all of a sudden, their skin looked like a baby, spotless, soft, super good. Then they saw God turn water into wine. They saw blind people suddenly seeing again. They saw people who could never walk, all of a sudden getting up, jumping up and down. They saw money coming out of the mouth of fish. Like, these are some crazy things. Has any of that happened in your, your life? Have you seen a fish and saw money in it? That is weird. <laughs> if so, I would like to find them because I could use the money. But we have not found that. But all the disciples saw this. Uh, one of the disciples talked about that they actually saw even more than this. That um, in his book, John chapter 21, he says, there are many other things that Jesus did. And if every one of them were written down, I suppose the whole world would not be big enough for all the books that would be written. And he talks about what just happened, what he's talking about is not like a whole lifetime. He's talking about the three-year span of Jesus' ministry. So that, he's saying, what they experienced could not even be recorded because it was so much. So of all of the things that they saw, the thing that they asked to know more about was prayer. That's crazy. I think we don't understand the significance of that. But they saw incredible things that we don't even know what they saw. And yet, the thing they asked about was prayer. Maybe they asked because they felt inadequate compared to Christ in their prayer life. Or maybe they asked because they saw the effect that prayer had on Jesus' ministry. Because they saw him praying. Either way, I think, well, ultimately, why they asked is because they recognized that Jesus experienced prayer differently than they did. But the thing I love about that difference is that, that difference didn't deter them. That difference drew them in. I think for us, a lot of times, the difference we see goes back to those honest accusations we were just talking about, and it deters us. We think like, well, I'm not super holy, so I can't really pray. Or I don't really think it works, so I can't pray. Like we have all these excuses and we use those excuses to draw us away from prayer. When the disciples saw the differences and it drew them into Jesus, it drew them into prayer. And so because they were drawn in, they asked and Jesus answered. And I think his answer we really needed to pay attention to because he didn't respond like, oh, yeah, that's cool. If you want to pray, um, this is something you could do. But instead, he was very specific and he said, when you pray. Our church just finished a Teach Us How to Pray series. So just a little caveat, I would say go back and listen to that if you haven't. 
because it helps really understand prayer in a different way, I think, than a lot of us do. And so go back and listen to it. But for tonight, one of the things we talked about was just the start of Jesus' instructions in the Lord's Prayer. And I want to draw from that again. In the beginning, he says, when you pray. So what he's saying is, when you do this prayer, everything that this prayer is talking about, which is bringing heaven to earth, in order for that to happen, we have to pray. His beginning instructions on prayer was issuing an expectation for us to pray. But I think here is where a lot of us get, like, really stuck, and it's hard. Like, maybe we can wrap our head around the fact that, yeah, prayer is good. It works if you do it, and, and some people have success with it. And I, I get Jesus tells me I should pray, and, and so I can believe in that. But we still don't. We still don't engage in prayer, and I think that's where we need a shift. I think sometimes we don't take up our role of prayer because of all of those accusations, all of those thoughts that we, we get hung up on, and we hold those things against prayer. We think prayer is so big, and so we just don't know where to start, and so we don't. But I like what Corey Russell says. He says, Jesus, or he, Jesus said, when you pray, which means you learn how to pray by praying. Prayer is on-the-job training, and you grow by doing it. When it comes to prayer, I always tell people to start, and the Holy Spirit will begin to teach them as they pray. How many of you know how to talk in this room? All of us? That's good. Good job, guys. But did you guys just wait and never say a word until you proved you knew, like, the whole dictionary? You started making sounds. And no one understood what you're saying. And then you, you kept going, right? And you learned on the job. That's the same with prayer. It's on the job training. Another way we can say this is as we engage with God in prayer, God engages with us. And this engagement produces what we're calling a shift. I think we could talk about a lot of people that maybe have experienced prayer in a significant way, and we can look at their life and be like, this is a great example. But there's one story that I came across um, a couple months ago, and it's just really stuck with me. And so I want to talk about him tonight, and I, my prayer is that it sticks with you too, and it's just something like you can't shake after hearing about him. But his name is John Hyde. Everybody say John Hyde. All right, John Hyde, he lived in 1865 to 1912. And I want to kind of just stop right there because I'm going to assume just for now that you guys are like me. And the fact that sometimes I hear dates like that and I'm just like, that is way a long time ago. And so because it feels like a way long time ago, I distance myself from the story. I'm like, that sounds really good for him, but he has no idea what it's like living in 2024. So that's a great story, but it doesn't really apply to me. But I want to break down that date a little bit to make us realize it really is not that far away from us. So if you do the math, John Hyde, 1865 to 1912, that means he really died kind of early in life. He was 47 years old when he died, which is pretty young. Most people live into their, like, 90s. So let's just pretend he lived until his 90s. 
he would have probably died then in the 1960s, which still sounds like kind of far from now. But just for perspective, a lot of you have grandparents in here that were born in the 1960s. I'm going to date myself, but my mom was born in the 1960s. Okay? So we don't have to do the math further than that. But what I mean is that they may have been kids or little or babies when he was dying if he had lived that long. But it's still in the same lifespan. So what this guy experienced with God is not that far from us, which means I don't want you to distance yourself from him. 1912 seems forever ago, but really his story is not that far from us, which means we can really apply this to ourselves, okay? So John Hyde lived from 1865 to 1912, but John was actually more known by his nickname. His name was John Praying Hyde, which the question that brings up for me is like, how much do you have to pray before someone gives you the nickname Praying, right? Like, because nicknames work like you see something funny on someone or you know a character trait about them that you see all the time. So they get that nickname. His nickname was Praying. So that means he prayed a lot, right? Prayer marked his life. But John was a missionary to India beginning in 1892. But John, I like what he says about how he started in the missionary field. For us, like, or for me anyway, when I hear that, I'm like, super holy guy. Makes sense why his name's praying. But he says the reason he decided to be a missionary is he recognized that he had a natural talent for that kind of stuff. And he thought he could get really good really fast and become really famous for it. So I point that out in his story again to remind us we really are not that distant from this guy, right? He was a guy who gets the name praying, but he was not some religious elite. We like to put people who pray into a box. He wasn't that. He had issues. He entered doing something for God in the name of God, but it was all about him. We do that, and yet he ends up with a nickname about praying. So prayer is not because you're perfect, okay? Prayer is a decision. It's a, a lifestyle, and we're going to talk about that. But one more reason, just pointing out that do not distance yourself from this story. This story could be your story, okay? So John talks about that he entered the mission field in India because he wanted to be famous. However, four years later, he was not successful in missionary work because he had no converts for four years. So John decided finally to pray. And he writes a letter back home to America. And in the letter he says, I have felt led to pray for others this winter like never before. I never before knew what it was to work all day and then pray all night before God for another. In college or at parties at home, I used to keep such hours for myself or for pleasures. But can I not do as much for God and for souls? So John is entering this work for the Lord selfishly. But because of failure, he comes to the end of himself and he decides it's time to pray. And as he enters into prayer, his heart begins to shift. After he enters into prayer, John goes from serving the Lord for his own gain, his own fame, to actually serving the people he was called to. 
John became so attached to prayer that his life and his literal name became synonymous with praying. And soon, the revival he thought he would start at the beginning actually came about in a revival called Silcot. One commentator on the revival said, the effect was felt throughout all India, and the breath of heaven sweeping over the land could be traced to the kneeling figure of praying Hyde. That's a good story. That shows transformation. It shows a change. It shows a shift. But what I like is that that's not the end of his story. God is such a better storyteller than sometimes we give him credit. So we're going to keep going in his story because it's good. John praying Hyde went from someone who thought all of the effort of prayer was too much, right? In his letter, he talks about before I didn't want to engage in prayer because I wanted to do my own thing. I wanted to go to parties. I wanted just to hang out. When I got off of work, I didn't really want to engage in prayer. But when I decided to do it, my life was changed. It says he, he went from thinking prayer took effort to being captivated by prayer. So much so that John became known for praying days on end, where he would lay on the ground on his face, on his stomach or prostate, and he would just lay there for days and hours. He would miss meals. He would sleep all to pursue prayer. Prayer became such a fervent desire for him that he became known as praying a very, very serious prayer. He said, give me souls or I die. That's an intense statement. I die. (laughs) But he became fervent in his prayer life. By 1912, John's health started suffering. And so he went home to America to recover But when he got there, he soon passed away. So because he was so young, they went ahead and did an autopsy to kind of figure out what was going on. And when they opened him up, they found out that his heart, your heart's normally on the left side of your chest. But because of all the years that he had spent lying on the ground is what they believe, his heart actually shifted in his chest to the right side, which is crazy. Quite literally, through prayer, John's heart was shifted. Now, we may not all experience that. Like, we may not all engage in prayer, and all of a sudden we, like, feel our hearts like, oh, my gosh, my heart just moved. Like, the Grinch, like, my heart grew three sizes. But that is literally uh, what we are called to experience in a spiritual sense. Spiritually, that's exactly what takes place when we take up our role to pray. God shifts our heart. Charles Spurgeon says, true prayer is trading of the heart with God. Without prayer, we're self-centered. We're people who are concerned with our ways. We don't have any concern for the kingdom. We're thinking about what we need. We're thinking about what we want. We're not concerned with bringing heaven to earth because we're pretty comfortable with earth as it is. I think this is something God's been staring in me lately. Um, I think it's so natural for us in humanity to go about our existence like we're the main character. I mean, you guys, like, ever relate? You can be honest. I can relate. But it's like you're in a movie, and you're the main character. And as much as I love you guys, you guys are all the supporting characters of my story. (laughs) Okay? But the more you do that, the more my story becomes important. And your story is just a byproduct. And that's not good. 
It's not accurate. It's not right. And the reality is, is it's not my story, and it's not your story. It's God's story. We're all a part of his story. And when we pray, when we press into that, that is the shifting of our heart to remember that, that it's not about my kingdom. It's about God's kingdom. When we engage in prayer, the Lord begins to shift our hearts so we can see things like that. In Ezekiel chapter 36, he says, A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. So when we pray, our heart is shifted. But how specifically does prayer shift us? I'm gonna, we're going to cover five points. I think you guys can handle it. So if you're taking notes, prayer shifts us. Uh, prayer shifts our source. Before we really engage in prayer, based off of our actions, we may say differently, we may think differently, but our actions display that we are our own God. Because we don't go to God. We say, I'm my provider. I can handle this. I don't need you. But suddenly, a need will arise, and, and we can't fix it anymore. Everything else we've entrusted so far can no longer fix it. And so, a desperate prayer is uttered. It's in those Hail Mary prayers and those moments it's our heart and hearts are revealing our soul's understanding of the significance of prayer. Charles Spurgeon says a very good quote. It says, I believe in the truthfulness of this instinct when a man calls out to God in moments of distress. And I believe that man prays because there is something in prayer. When the creator gives his creature the power of thirst, it's because water exists to meet that thirst. When he creates hunger, there is food to correspond to appetite. Even so, when he inclines man to pray, it is because prayer has a corresponding blessing connected with it. When we get to the end of ourselves, and it's usually because there's a big need in our life, what we are testifying to when we finally go to God is that we were created to pray. And what that means is if I am created, then I am not the source. But the source is the one I'm going to, the one who did the creating. When we pray, prayer shifts who our source is. Number two, prayer shifts our perspective. As I engage in prayer and I re-experience who my source is, I realize like, when it came to it, I could not provide for myself. So I don't deserve the throne. When it came to it, the enemy, all of his promises fell flat. So he does not get to be on the throne. When it came to it, the world cannot provide for me. So he, the world does not deserve the throne. And we realize that it is only God on the throne. Pastor Sarah talks about, like, it, it's changing our view that we're beholding Jesus. So as we behold him, our perspective is changing. Our focus is changing. And now we can see rightly who really is sitting there on the throne. Corey Russell says that Jesus allowed his disciples to watch him pray because he wanted them to watch him engage with the Father in heaven. He wanted them to see the throne and who was sitting there. This perspective shift takes place. Our prayers start to shift. When you think prayer, you think list. 
that I, Jesus, think person. I want to introduce you to a person, a place, and the person's name. It's our Father in heaven, by the way. Number three, prayer shifts our will. When our prayer shifts from lists and things all about me, things only I want or what God can give me, when we start to pray and we start to go deeper in prayer, our prayer shifts to where we start crying out what Jesus did, that not my will, but yours be done. It isn't about us anymore. It's not about what I want. My heart is not just concerned about me. My heart is equally affected, equally burdened by somebody else's need. This is the part of prayer that we call intercession, right? And intercession is just an action of intervening on behalf of another. So when we engage in prayer, prayer shifts our source and who is on the throne, and it helps us change our focus or our perspective, which changes our will. So if you remember way back when, when Ryan read our teaching text, we're going to dive back into that because just like John is a great display of a heart that shifted, Daniel also shows what praying can do. But before we can really understand what's going on in that text and what's going on for Daniel, I want to just give you a little bit of history um, for Daniel's life. So Daniel's an Israelite, and Israel has a really big history of obeying God and getting the blessings from that obedience, like the promised land. They also have a really big history of disobedience and the consequences of that disobedience, like walking in the desert for 40 years before they get to go to the promised land. So in this part of Israel's history, they've been in the promised land for some time. They've been enjoying it, and so they've gotten comfortable, and they're starting that cycle again of backsliding um, into disobedience, so much so that God begins to speak through prophets and warns them, like, you guys have got to get your act together. You have to repent because if you don't, the disobedience you choose is going to cost you. This land that I've given you, this promised land, another is going to come in and take it away from you unless you repent. You have to repent. But Israel did not heed the warning, and so the prophecy was fulfilled. This other nation, Babylon, came in and began over a series of years to start taking this land from them, to start taking the Israelites out of the promised land to Babylon. And that's where Daniel finds himself. He's one of those who's been taken captive into the land of Babylon, and he's captive and captured because of the depravity and sin of his nation. Daniel, when he's writing Daniel chapter 9, he's actually been in Babylon for a, for a while now, and he's reflecting back on this prophecy that got them there. And he remembers, though, that the prophecy didn't just warn them of this danger that was going to happen, but it also revealed God's mercy and God's grace and, and his plan for ending that captivity. Just like Egypt, where the Israelites were in Egypt for a long time and then God came in with Moses, the prophecy basically talked about that. We're like, you're in captivity now but you will not always be. Like, there will be a day where I will come back and redeem you. And so Daniel's doing the math, and he's realizing, like, that time is almost up. So when we get to chapter 9, Daniel is praying about that. He's seeking God to understand it. He's seeking God to find mercy. And so he's entering into this time of prayer in this desperate situation. 
As he prays, he recognizes that God is the source of the solution needed. The more he prays, he gains the perspective of why Israel is in the place that they are, including himself. He recognizes that it is a sin problem. But he recognizes that the Lord is a God who redeems, and his will is to save people. He remembers that God, like you, did not turn away from us. We turned away from you. And so he begins to press into intercession on behalf of the people. So in verse 19, that's his intercession. He says, O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. When you continue reading into the story, it says that as he's praying, an angel comes and and gives him this message that, like, this is the understanding that you've been asking for. And I love that it says, like, he didn't even get to the amen yet. He didn't finish, and God's already giving an answer. I love the immediacy of that prayer because I think that happens a lot of times when we pray is God responds quickly. There's been a lot of times we do midweek prayer every Wednesday, right, at noon. And I'll be honest, I'll let you guys judge me for a minute, but sometimes I don't feel like praying. I don't feel like coming. I'm tired. I didn't sleep that night very good, and so I'm like, I don't want to enter into prayer because I'm going to fall asleep. Or I think about my big to-do list, and I'm like, this is going to take an hour out of my time. But every time I push past feeling and I enter into prayer, God shows up, and swiftly, my heart is shifted by God to where I leave so much different than when I came. That is an immediacy of prayer. And that's Daniel in this moment. He's praying, and before he says amen, his answer has come. The answer was he got clarity on the prophecy and clarity of the world that he was living in. And God gave him insight to the times, which I think is a lot of what our prayer should be is, God, like, help me understand what is going on in this world. That is Daniel. And so the prophecy does finish out where God promised, like, you're not gonna, Babylon's not going to hold you captive forever. And so pretty soon, in the next couple years, that's exactly what happens. A new king comes into town, and he starts releasing the Israelites back to Jerusalem. So a few years go by, and the first wave of exiles have returned to Jerusalem. But Daniel is still in Babylon. He's now under this new king called King Cyrus. And during the third year of this guy's reign, Daniel gets a new vision from God. And so now Daniel enters into a new prayer that we haven't read just yet. But he enters into this new prayer because he's like, God, what did you just tell me? What does this mean? And it says, though, this time is a little bit different than the first time. The first time he prayed one time and he didn't even finish his prayer and God sends an answer. But this time... It says he's praying for 21 days. In Daniel chapter 10, verse 2, it says, In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. He was engaged in some serious prayer. He was not just, like, giving a prayer, like, for good luck and just on, on a whim. Like, he was engaged in this prayer. He was praying for 21 days. He was fasting for 21 days. This is where we we get the Daniel fast, which many of you may have just finished 
as our church did the 21 days of prayer and fasting. This is what he's doing in this time. He's abstaining from things, but he's pursuing the Lord persistently. Number four, prayer shifts what we occupy. In other words, like it's a position of persistence. As we engage in prayer more diligently, it shifts us to where we don't just give up, we persist. Daniel prayed over the same thing for 21 days. It wasn't something he was just regurgitating and just saying, but he was fixed in prayer. He was persistent. Like I said, we our church did a Teach Us to Pray series, and I can't remember exactly who was talking about it. It was either Pastor David or Pastor Tondrai, but one of them said, sometimes we don't receive our prayers, not because the Lord isn't answering, but because we aren't persisting. We aren't pressing. James chapter 5 says that the affected, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much or accomplishes much. So when we engage in prayer, God shifts our heart so that we remember whose kingdom. That's what the Lord prayer is all about is God's kingdom. And we remember like, wait a minute, this is not the enemy's kingdom. He doesn't get to say some things right now. Like this is God's. And it shifts you to want to persist and want to reclaim territory and occupy the land. Occupy means to take up a place or to fill a space. So in other words, we're reminded like, this is my territory to take. This is a place to see come into agreement with heaven so that earth is as it is in heaven. And as long as I occupy it, as long as I persist here, this part of the world has to reflect God. This is where you pray things like, yeah, I know I've been praying to get over this sin struggle for like my entire life. And it looks like I just keep messing up. I keep messing up. But I am not going to surrender to this. I have been purchased with the blood of Christ. It's not I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. This is my territory. This is where you pray like, yeah, I know I've prayed for my family to know Jesus. And it looks like they are further from him every time I pray. But this is my territory. Like, I will not give up on my family. I will persist until my family sees heaven on earth. I know I have prayed for days and days and days, and I don't feel any closer to God. But I will not surrender to feelings. This is my territory. I walk by faith, not by sight. Daniel was persisting in prayer for 21 days. I think we think, like, again, he's this religious elite, so of course he can. But he was a human. And think about it. And he was hungry. He was not eating. We get cranky when that happens. I get cranky anyway. I don't think it was so easy for him to be praying these 21 days. But he was persistent. I think he could have easily had thoughts like, God, what are you doing? I just prayed, and you answered immediately. Like, are you not going to answer me this time? What is going on? In verse 4, it says that on the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted up my eyes and looked. And behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Upaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning. 
his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. Then he said to me, fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me for 21 days. But Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. For I was left there with the king of Persia and came to make you understand what has happened or what will happen to your people in the latter days. So that story can sound confusing, but I don't want us to miss what's here. Daniel has been persisting for 21 days, and he doesn't know if God is answering him, if God is hearing him, if God is ignoring him. But what we hear in the scripture is that there's a lot of things happening in the spiritual world that Daniel is unaware of. Daniel didn't know any of this. He receives it the same time we receive it as we're reading it. For 21 days, he's praying, not knowing if God is listening. He was unaware, though, that the reality was there was a very significant response to his prayer. Although he couldn't see it in the immediate, it was there. David Guzik points out that the word prince has the idea of a ruler or authority. This fits well with the New Testament idea that angelic ranks are organized and have a hierarchy. These angelic ranks seem to include both faithful angels and fallen angels. And apparently, this prince of Persia was a demon of high rank that opposed the answer to prayer. So what's revealed is that while Daniel has been persisting in prayer for 21 days, there has been an enemy that has been actively opposing it to the point that it's a literal spiritual battle between angelic forces and demonic forces. This battle was ultimately won by the angelic force as the angel is able to come and give Daniel the word of God. But David Guzik points out that the correlation between Daniel's time of self-denial and prayer, those 21 days, and the duration of the battle between the angels and the prince of Persia establishes a link between Daniel's prayer and the angelic victory. So number five, prayer shifts us to engage in spiritual warfare. We decide, is it going to be as it is in heaven or is it going to be as it is in hell? The band can go ahead and, and make their way up. Archer says that there may be hindering factors of which a praying Christian knows nothing as he wonders why the answers to his requests are delayed. Nevertheless, he is to keep on praying. He may be, or it may be, that he will not receive an answer because he has given up on the 20th day when he should have persisted to the 21st day. So I'm not saying this to create a formula that, like, if you don't pray X amount of days, that your prayer is invalid. And I'm also not saying that I want you to create this false belief that God is just sitting up in heaven and he's just waiting to see if you're going to give up. And the second you do, like, he just snatches your prayer back. That's not the heart of God. The scripture talks about that on the first day that Daniel set himself to pray that God was sending a response. But the reality is is that just as faithful as God is in sending an answer, Satan is just as accurate in trying to block it. Because it, the Bible talks about that we have an enemy that seeks to kill, steal, and destroy. So I don't want you to think that God is just sitting waiting for you to stop persisting. But there is an element of our prayer where we need to persist. 
Ephesians 6, 12 says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Prayer shifts our hearts so we understand like this is not a flesh thing. This is not just me experiencing life and it's me versus you. Like this is a spiritual thing. There is a spiritual battle going on. And prayer gives us the eyes to see that. Prayer is how we participate in the battle with the Lord. 2 Corinthians 10.4 says, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Satan uses spiritual warfare to defeat God's will. It's what he uses to block heaven being established in earth. But we can understand prayer as our weapon of engagement in spiritual warfare. We become supernatural participants. And participants is a key because ultimately the battle is the Lord's. And ultimately he already has the victory. When we're saying like we're fighting a a spiritual battle, it's not because we're having to make sure the enemy doesn't win. What we're saying is we are coming in agreement with what God has already decided, that there is victory. And so what we're saying is that I am not gonna passively let the enemy take what never belonged to him to begin with. Prayer is our way of partnering with God instead of succumbing to the enemy. Prayer cannot be an afterthought in our life anymore. It can't be pushed to just the side where we only do it at mealtime and we only do it when we go to sleep. It has to be our language because the reality is prayer is the very heartbeat of the kingdom of God. If we want to see as it is in heaven, it comes through prayer. It's fulfilled through prayer. It's experienced through prayer. It's obtained through prayer. Corey Russell says that prayer is the great exposure of reality. If we want our reality to be as it is in heaven, then our role is to play a part in prayer. You guys can go ahead and stand and our leaders, you guys can make your way to the altar.